But no, Richard told me that a lot of animals increasingly are being taken indoors and uh, confined in big sheds, very crowded. Um, no real concern for the well-being of the animal, just concern for how cheaply you can produce the meat or eggs or, or milk. Um, and that's what started me thinking about um, the ethics of how we should treat animals. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. In 1975, a 29-year-old Australian philosopher wrote a book that is still considered by many to be the founding text of the animal rights movement. Animal Liberation, A New Ethics for Our Treatment of Animals, was the book that persuaded Ingrid Newkirk to create People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, the world's largest animal rights organisation. Peter's book introduced many to the word speciesism, the idea of unwarranted discrimination based merely on species. The book turned thousands of people into vegetarians or vegans. 45 years on, and now a world-famous professor of philosophy in Princeton University, Peter Singer has written another book on the same topic, Why Vegan? Peter, welcome back to the Good Life podcast. Thank you, Andrew. It's good to be with you again. So the, your question is, why vegan? Uh, my question is, uh, why another book on, uh, on, vegan, on vegetarianism and animal rights? Well, there's a, there's a very simple answer for that, and that is that uh, Penguin are, uh, are putting out a series of books called Great Ideas, and they asked me if I would like to be part of it. And I was certainly honoured to be part of it since the series starts with Aristotle and goes on from there. I think I'm actually the only living philosopher in the series. Um, um, Long may it remain that way. Um, <laughs> I hope so. Uh, and then... Um, they said so what you know we wanted on one particular topic one theme um and i thought well i could put together some of the things that i've written over the years about the ethics of what we eat um trending towards um being vegan uh, and make a case for why that's the best thing to do uh and put that together in a little volume and i and given the rising interest in in vegan plant-based eating uh, i thought that would be a interesting and worthwhile thing to attempt. It's thoroughly readable and it's the sort of book that uh, would sit inside a, a jacket pocket very easily and uh, be read comfortably in the course of an evening. So it's a very accessible way of diving into the topic. And one of my favourite bits of it is you have the discussion as to how you came to the topic of vegetarianism through a lunch in 1970. Tell us that story. Yes, it's, it's an interesting story because it shows the power of one person changing their diet. Um, and I'm not talking about me. I'm talking about a Canadian uh, student at Oxford called Richard Keshen, who I met by chance in a philosophy class. I you know, had nothing to do with animals or eating. And uh, we got into a discussion and he said, let's continue the conversation over lunch because it was just lunchtime. And uh, he invited me to Balliol College, his college. And when we walked into the dining hall, there was a choice of things you could eat. There was spaghetti with a brown sort of sauce on top of it, and there was a cold salad plate. And Richard uh, asked the person serving whether the sauce on the spaghetti had meat in it. And when he was told that it did, 
uh, he took the salad. So I took the spaghetti and we continued our conversation about whatever we were talking about. But when that ran out, I said to him, so why did you ask that question about meat? Uh, don't you eat meat? And, and you have to realize this is 1970 and I'm 24 years old. I've been through Melbourne University as an undergraduate and gone to Oxford. I don't think I've ever met a vegetarian. Um, <laughs> it, it may have been an Indian who was a Hindu and vegetarian for that reason, which obviously was not really going to appeal to me. Um, but you didn't really, you know, maybe there was some people who were pacifists um, and who thought you shouldn't kill anything and extended that to animals. But I don't remember having a conversation with anyone about that. Um, like most people, I just took for granted the fact that we ate meat. And uh, although I was studying ethics and interested in various issues, the, the Vietnam War, uh, abortion, I'd been involved in those issues. I'd never really thought seriously about the ethics of uh, whether what we're doing to animals is okay. But uh, when I asked Richard that question, he said something like, uh, I don't think it's right to treat animals the way the animal who you're now eating um, was treated. Uh, and that surprised me too, because I thought farm animals all had good lives, um, you know, out in the fields, reasonably well fed and so on. And then of course I knew they get trucked to slaughter and that's, you know, they're gonna have a very bad day. Um, but it seemed to me that that wasn't such a bad, you know, compromise overall. Um, but no, Richard told me that a lot of animals increasingly are being taken indoors and uh, confined in big sheds, very crowded. Um, no real concern for the well-being of the animal, just concern for how cheaply you can produce the meat or eggs or, or milk. Um, and that's what started me thinking about um, the ethics of how we should treat animals. How long did it take it before you moved from vegetarianism to veganism? Um, they say that uh, a, a vegetarian is just a, a vegan who hasn't read much philosophy or thought deeply about the topic. Uh, did, did you move fairly seamlessly to, uh, to, to taking the dairy out of your diet as well? Um, no, it took quite some time really. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's interesting, the, the book that is gonna, on sale in Australia is a a penguin, which is the same as the UK one. And it doesn't have any prefaces because obviously you can't ask Aristotle to write a new preface to some extract from his writings. But in the, U in the US, it's been published separately by Norton. And I wrote a preface for it in which I talk a bit about that. And I say that despite the title of the book, strictly speaking, I'm, I'm not really a vegan uh, because there are certainly, the, there are some uh, animals uh, that I don't think can feel pain, like oysters, for, for instance, and I'm prepared to eat them because my concern is pain and suffering, not not killing itself. Um, and, um, you know, although I, I know there are problems with any kind of egg production because the male chicks get killed and the hens don't live out their full lifespan, uh, if I know that eggs are coming from truly free-range hens that have had a good life, I'm, I'm not really much opposed to that and I will I will eat those eggs occasionally uh, but with dairy I moved away from that um, gradually uh, certainly you know once soy milks came out on the market um, and it were abundantly I, I switched my milk to, to soy or, or to now to almond or oat or whatever all the other things that are out there um, cheeses took a bit longer because there weren't really good vegan uh, substitutes but um, you know, it, it was really a matter of, of a gradual development to that. And not also in a way, not wanting to be too extreme um, because 
even as recently as 10 or 15 years ago, uh, being vegan was very unusual. You had to explain to people what the word vegan meant. Um, and so I, I thought in a way it might be off-putting if um, you say to people not, look, you shouldn't be eating meat, but you shouldn't be eating animal products at all. That's a much bigger jump. And as I hadn't taken that all in one jump, I thought that might be asking people too much of people. But, but now it's different because there are so many vegans around and there's so many uh, vegan products available on the market that I think it's much easier for people to make that transition. Well, let's give listeners who haven't read your books on the topic uh, a bit of a flavour of the arguments. Uh, uh, you talk about the, the huge scale of animal killing, um, 60 billion land animals a year or about nine per person, a trillion fish per year or about 150 fish per person. Uh, so it's a, it's a vast industry you're talking about. Maybe we should start with uh, poultry. Uh, what's, uh, uh, wh why do you believe it's wrong to eat chickens? Well, uh, factory chicken production is really one of the worst treatments of animals uh, that exists, I think. In fact, uh, Professor John Webster, who was a professor of veterinary science at the University of Bristol in, in England and started a centre for research into farm animal welfare, regards it as the worst of all. Um, and there are uh, a, a number of reasons for that. One is we've bred chickens to grow extremely fast. That's a part of why chicken has become cheaper because the, the chickens you buy in the supermarket are only about six weeks old. So they're really babies, but they're quite large. Um, and because they put on weight so fast, their legs, their, their bones, and particularly their leg bones, are not really mature enough to support their weight uh, properly. So uh, Professor Webster says that for the last couple of weeks of their lives, these birds are in pain because their legs can't really take their weight. Um, he likens it to somebody who has arthritis and is forced to stand up all day. Uh, and they, they, they really are forced to stand up because they're standing on, on litter, sort of wood shavings or straw or something like that, that is full of their droppings. Um, you've got 20,000 birds in a single shed. The litter doesn't even get cleaned out in most cases between each group of birds. It may, be, it may go months or a year or more. Um, so it's full of droppings, and you notice this whenever you walk into one of these sheds. The, the ammonia in the in the air just stings your your nose and throat and eyes. But the birds, of course, are in it all day. Um, so they can't really sit down on the litter because uh, then any moisture turns the uh, ammonia into a into an acid-like substance, a weak form of uh, ammonia acid, and uh, and that actually gives them burns on their on their thighs. So. It's a, it, it's a miserable existence. And that's only one aspect of it. You know, you could go on. I mean, another thing to think about is these birds are bred deliberately to have a great appetite. So they will put on weight so fast. That's okay for them because they can eat as much food as they like. That's the point. But what about their parents? Um, if their parents ate as much food as they liked, and of course they have the same genes, so they have the same appetite, uh, they would keel over and die from obesity before they were sexually mature. So you can't have that. You can't have breeding birds uh, that die before they're sexually mature. So the solution is essentially to, to half starve the birds, to uh, feed them only every second day, for example, or to feed them very small rations. So the, the parents of the chickens that we're eating are just perpetually hungry um, and can't get enough to eat. And you know, all of this is done, as I say, to reduce the price of chicken. Um, and it's 
not a, not something that we need to be supporting and eating. You talk about in the case of uh, dairy cattle about the uh, way in which calves are uh, taken away for the mothers at a very early stage. What point does that occur? Uh, calves will be taken from their mothers uh, within the, the first hours after birth. Um, the, the calf may be allowed to have uh, one drink of, to get the colostrum, which um, will help the calf to survive, although some of the calves are slaughtered more or less immediately. Uh, the male calves of dairy, uh, of dairy cows are not worth very much because they don't produce very much meat and of course they don't produce any milk. Um, so uh, so they're taken yeah, away within hours. And, and the bond between uh, uh, a cow and a calf is very strong. Um, they're, they're mammals as we are. Um, and dairy farmers will tell you that, uh, at least those, those who allow their cows out into the fields, not all of them do. But uh, if you take the, the calf away at a particular place, um, when the cow returns to that place, if they cast it, they'll, they'll look for the, for the calf. Uh, even you know weeks after the calf has been taken away, they'll they'll stop, they'll look around, uh, they'll call out, um, and they are clearly missing their calf at that point. And of course, the calf also uh, misses his or her mother. As I say, if it's a he, it's not going to last very long anyway. In most cases, some of them might be reared for hamburger for hamburger. Oops, sorry, some of them might be reared for hamburger meat, but but mostly not. Um, uh, the uh, the females may be uh, reared to be dairy cows themselves, and they will then also be missing their mother um, during that period. The uh, cover page of your book says, uh, so the only question is, do animals other than man suffer? Uh, that suffering line, uh, do, do fish fall on the, on the right side of that? Can we defend uh, eating fish? I believe they do. Um, some people have questioned that, but I think now we've got uh, better research done on it. Uh, there's a, a book by a scientist called Victoria Braithwaite called uh, Do Fish Feel Pain? And uh, I think it's very convincing. She refers to a variety of experiments done uh, showing that, um, you know, that if you um, insert uh, something that would cause pain to the the mouth of a fish, like uh, bee venom, I think was used in one experiment. Um, the fish uh, behave as if they're in pain. They they stop their um, what they would would be doing with their mouth otherwise. That is sort of scooping around on the bottom, looking looking for food. And um, if you then give them analgesics like uh, aspirin, um, their pain, their, sorry, their behaviour starts to return to normal. So it seems very probable that they are feeling pain in something like the same way that we are. Their behaviour indicates that and uh, their response to, to painkillers indicates that. Do you think it's, uh, it's possible to, uh, to, to do fishing in a more humane way? I mean, you talk about some of the, the worst practices like long line fishing and gill nets, um, but there's also people who are looking at more humane killing of, uh, of fish, uh, percussive stunning or, or spiking immediately after they come out of the water. Uh, would that make eating fish acceptable in your view or, or just a little less unacceptable? Maybe a little less unacceptable. Uh, so there are still you know, going to be problems. It depends when you say when they come out of the water, what happened to them in the water? Uh, were they, for example, are they deep sea fish uh, who were hauled up from great depths 
in that case, they may already be dead by the time they reach the surface from from decompression. Um, as you know, as as divers who come up suddenly would feel uh, extreme pain from the decompression and perhaps die. Um, uh, we already mentioned long line nets, which might be used to haul them in. But even if, if they're in a, a big trawling net, um, they will be suffering just through being compressed in that net with thousands of other fish. Uh, so it's, it's you know, there may be some methods where the fish is very quickly hauled out of the water and then humanely killed. Um, you know, if that really is happening, it's happening with a, just an infinitesimal uh, proportion of the commercial fish catch of the world. Uh, very, I think maybe uh, Norway and the Netherlands are experimenting with the humane slaughter of, of fish, but um, most of the countries in the world are not, not bothering with that at all. And in terms of uh, the way in which uh, land animals are, are slaughtered, uh, you have some discussion in the book about uh, chicken slaughterhouses. Uh, I, uh, I presume you also uh, don't see the practices pursued in, uh, in ruminant slaughterhouses as being perfect either. No, they're certainly not. Um, again, chickens maybe come off worst because each individual uh, bird is worth so little um, that there's no real care taken. Um, whereas with larger animals like uh, cattle or pigs, each of them is, is you know, worth something significant. So they don't want to get the animals too stressed, particularly with pigs, it, uh, when they're really when they're stressed, um, the, the meat is of lower quality. Uh, but still, it's it's uh, the workers are under great time pressure. Um, the economics of slaughterhouses basically mean that the more animals you kill per hour, the more money the slaughterhouse makes, and so. You know, accounts from slaughterhouse workers will tell you that uh, if something goes wrong in the line, which means that the animal is not being killed instantly, uh, in, instead of stopping the line, uh, the supervisor will tell the workers to, to go on with it while they try and fix it while animals are, are still coming through. So uh, the commercial de uh, desire to kill as many animals as possible in, a, in the shortest possible time often overrides the humane uh, imperative to see that the animals actually don't suffer and that they're killed immediately. So let's go through some of the counter arguments that are made to, uh, to, to your uh, case for animal liberation. Uh, you've spoken already about uh, the, the claim that animals don't suffer and uh, science seems to be ex advancing pretty regularly on that and, and teaching us about where the line is, would you would you then stop eating oysters if you were persuaded by studies that uh, that oysters do in fact feel pain, that they do suffer? If I were persuaded by that, I would certainly stop eating them. Yes, um, but the nervous system is pretty simple, though, and also uh, I believe that that pain evolved as a, a warning sign of danger to enable animals to move away from things that would be dangerous to them that might uh, kill them. Uh, and of course, oysters can't really move away from uh, any danger. So that's another reason to think that maybe it's unlikely, not impossible, but unlikely that oysters have evolved nervous systems that include perceptions of pain. What about insects? Uh, do, do insects feel pain? Yeah, that's the big unknown, I think. And, and the question is too general because it's perfectly possible that some insects feel pain and others don't. Uh, there's a huge variety of insects, of course. Um, and 
uh, a difference in the number of, of neurons that they have as well. Um, bees are pretty much up the top of the insects with, uh, in terms of both the, the number of neurons they have and um, in terms of the complexity of their behavior. And uh, there've been studies about bees communicating the uh, location and distance of sources of, of, um, of pollen by doing dances on the hive in the sort of figure of eight patterns that indicate uh, where the where the source is. Um, so it's it's. But but that's different, isn't it? Sorry to interrupt you there, there Peter. I mean, you're because you're quite clear that the the line is suffering, right? So bees could be could be smart but unable to feel pain, and that would mean it was okay to uh, to to make up some sort of a, a fried bee concoction. I suppose so, um, or maybe you know. To the point, we don't if we don't really know uh, whether they're capable of suffering because their honey is removed. Um, whether whether that matters to them, but yes, you're you're quite right to point out that intelligence is one thing, and we can certainly have what seem to be very intelligent uh, robots or computers um, without thinking that they're conscious. Which is not to say that there couldn't eventually be conscious artificial general intelligence, but I don't think there is as yet. Um, so it's possible that that's what bees are. They're like uh, complex little machines that can perform uh, these kinds of behaviors, but actually don't suffer. Uh, but how do we know? Um, uh, it's an interesting debate that has really only just started to get into the scientific literature with uh, quite a small number of papers published uh, discussing this. Some of them uh, sort of jointly authored by a, a scientist uh, studying insects and a philosopher uh, asking the questions about what counts as a sign of consciousness. Yeah, well, I'm in an area in Canberra where the uh, indigenous people used to get together to uh, feast on bogong moths when they came through. Uh, but uh, it certainly sounds from what you're saying as though in principle, if, uh, if insects can feel pain, they're, they're within your, uh, your realm of concern and therefore uh, bogong moth feasts are, are, are unethical in that, di that dimension. Well, they, they would be if we knew that bogong moths uh, were capable of feeling pain and, and suffered, uh, you know, depending maybe on, on how they were killed. Um, but uh, we don't know that. Um, mm. And so mm. I think that there's, there's some doubt about that. Maybe better not to eat uh, anything where there's doubt if um, we have good alternatives. Of course, Indigenous people didn't have good alternatives if they wanted to live uh, healthy and be well nourished. But um, if we have good alternatives, then maybe better not. But uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm, it depends on how big the doubt really is and how likely it is that bogong moths can feel pain. Uh, and honestly, I don't really know. One of the other counter arguments to animal liberation was uh, put uh, a while back by Richard Posner, uh, who said that uh, it's, it's okay to prefer our own species or tribe or pack uh, over others. Uh, how do you respond to that critique? I wonder, you know, if, 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 that's the, if that's the claim, just that because they're our, yeah, actually, you actually said tribe, but um, if the claim that Posner is making is it's, it's okay to prefer our species just because it's our species, then what are you going to say about somebody who says, well, it's okay to prefer our tribe, literally speaking, um, and, or our ethnic group, in other words, and therefore to give priority to one uh, ethnic group or one race or uh, over, over others. Uh, and, you know, of course, 
we reject that today. Certainly you and I reject it. I expect that uh, our listeners reject it. Um, there are unfortunately some people in the world who don't reject it, but uh, we think that it's wrong. So uh, I, I think that there is a kind of a, a parallel here between racism and sexism too, for that matter, and speciesism, that, that basically the logic is, um, I can give preference to those who are more like me in some way. And unless you can show that the like me is a morally relevant uh, distinction, then I don't think that that argument can go through. So then the claim has to be, well, the differences between humans and non-human animals are greater than the differences between humans of different races or males and females. Uh, and that may be true, but it doesn't actually explain uh, practices because the differences that are usually referred to are, are cognitive differences. Uh, and yet when you point to the fact that some humans don't have that, uh, the, the cognitive abilities that make them superior to non-human animals, um, nobody is suggesting that therefore it would be okay to treat them in the way that we treat non-human animals. So there is still something um, going that says because they're members of our species, uh, they have moral rights which no being who's not a member of our species has. Uh, and I don't see the justification for that claim. Mm -hmm. Another critique is that uh, we as humans have brought factory farming into existence. And so uh, cattle, for example, beef cattle, for example, wouldn't exist at all if we didn't have factory farming and, and that a, uh, a, a life spent uh, grazing and then finally going to the slaughterhouse uh, may not be a perfect life, but it's better than no life at all. Uh, how do you respond to that one? So um, where animals really do have a good life throughout their life, so let's say since you talked about uh, beef cattle, let's say that they don't go to a feedlot for several months at the end of their life, which I think is a pretty bad life for them, but um, let's say that they're out on grass in a social group of uh, the kind that is suitable to their species. And then let's just assume that they're painlessly killed um, without having to endure long trucking uh, or, or anything of that sort. Um, then I think that's, that's a difficult argument to refute because because the, the argument essentially is if, if you didn't do this, the animal wouldn't exist. Um, it's not harming it to bring it into existence to have this kind of life, even if the life is a shorter one than it would have in uh, natural conditions. Um, and therefore you can't say that it's better for the animal that people didn't eat these animals. I, I think, you know, I, I have some sympathy for that argument. Obviously the objection that you can make is that you're still wronging this animal. This animal could have had a, a longer good life and yet you're killing it because you want to eat it. Um, and that cuts short its life in a way that's not justifiable. So I, I see that the, there's an ongoing debate between people who hold those positions and it gets into quite deep uh, ethical questions about bringing people into existence, which can apply to humans as well. You know, if, if you think it's good to bring people into existence and uh, sorry, to bring cattle into existence so that they can have good lives, then is it also good to bring humans into existence so they can have good lives? And does that mean that uh, fertile couples ought to have children, at least if, um, if they can look after them well? Um, or 
And uh, then somebody might say, well, the world has 7.6 billion people at the moment, which is more than it can support in, uh, in an environmentally sustainable way. But um, a lot of people would say, even if the population of the world were much lower, there still wouldn't be an obligation to have children, still wouldn't be particularly be a good thing to have children. That would be up to each individual couple. And, and that's hard to reconcile with the idea that because you've brought these cattle into existence, you've benefited them in some way. Hmm. That is really interesting because I'd expected that the the marginal case in some sense would be the sardine rather than the Angus cow. Uh, so it's uh, it's fascinating for, for me to hear you uh, you reflect on it that way. Uh, one of the other critiques you uh, you get it and uh, often from uh, from parents who are thinking about whether their kids should be uh, uh, vegetarian or vegan uh, is just that people need protein and uh, eating animal flesh is a really good way of getting protein. How do you respond on that one? Uh, eating animal flesh is certainly one way of getting protein. Of course, you also get a lot of other things with it. You typically get uh, a lot of fat with it. Um, and uh, with red meat, you get this uh, heme, which some uh, medical scientists think is maybe a factor in causing cancers of the digestive system. Um, but we do have alternatives to uh, getting protein from animals. Um, you know, we have a lot of plant-based proteins now, which as I was saying it earlier on, are much more widely available than uh, they were when I became a vegetarian in 1970. You can, you can get a whole lot of different uh, products. You can, if you want to keep eating burgers, you can get plant-based burger-like products. Um, of course, you could always get legumes. And now that we have more of a Middle Eastern population and an Indian population, we have a lot of ways of cooking lentils and, and peas and chickpeas and so on that uh, we didn't have before. Um, so you don't, you don't, we don't need that. And in fact, uh, again, especially if the animals are fed on grain or soybeans, um, which in the case of cattle would be, as I say, for those last months when they are fattened on a feedlot, um, it's, a, it's a wasteful system. You actually are putting more protein uh, into the animal and, and more calories as well than you get out of it because the animal has to use a lot of the food just uh, to keep the body warm, to move around and to develop mm. parts of the body that we don't eat, the bones and some you know, internal organs and so on. So um, it's not an, uh, an efficient way of producing the protein that humans need. And although this is only a short book, it does uh, contain a, a recipe in the middle of it, uh, your, your favourite dal recipe, uh, which I assume you included in part to, uh, to make clear to people that uh, there are ways of, uh, of eating veg in, a, in a vegan way which are both uh, yummy and healthful. Yes, that's right. That's you know, one of the things we did when my wife and I became vegetarian is we started looking outside our standard Northern European cuisine, which does tend to be meat-centered and to look at uh, Indian and Chinese and uh, a variety of other cuisines, some Mediterranean cuisines, of course, too, that are much less meat-centered. And in India, uh, uh, dal, which is a sort of lentil curry served with, with rice and maybe with papadums and uh, spicy pickles and so on, um, is a very traditional meal. And it actually has a very good balance of uh, protein and carbohydrates. Uh, so, I, and I and it's quite simple to make. Um, you can make it in large quantities and freeze it. Freezes very well. So, uh, it's an easy way of getting a, a tasty, healthy plant-based meal. 
most of us aren't killing our own animals. So uh, some people say there's no point going vegetarian because the uh, uh, meat you see in the supermarket has already been killed and the supermarket's uh, already gone out and purchased it. So you're not immediately saving a life. How do you respond on that one? Well, I wonder if people would make the same argument, say, about uh, if they knew that the food had been produced um, by slaves uh, who were forced forced to work to, to to grow the food. Would they say, oh, mm. well, the slaves have already produced it. You know, they didn't do it for me, um, so I might as well buy it. Um, I think people would and should boycott uh, products of slavery, and I think they should would and should boycott products of the cruelty we inflict on animals, even if that cruelty is already passed. Because obviously, um, if we wanted to stop, then uh, it would stop if we stop buying it. And the fewer people buy it, the less will be produced. So I think that that is a, a fairly obvious and, and effective way of reducing uh, the, the quantity of suffering uh, by not supporting it with with the money we spend that's that's basically the support that the industries that abuse animals need they they need us to keep buying their products and if we can stop that or even if we can reduce it they'll um either cease or at least become uh less significant and smaller numbers of animals will suffer much of the power of uh, animal liberation and why vegan comes through the analogies uh, with sexism with racism uh, you uh, you talk about uh, the way in which uh, motivated reasoning can uh, can affect the way meat eaters think about vegetarianism, uh, just as uh, slave owners found it difficult to think through the issue of slavery. Um, uh, I remember a, a friend of mine who'd uh, read Animal Liberation saying that he found himself much in the same position of uh, Thomas Jefferson, uh, convinced of the wrongness of slavery but yet continuing to own slaves. Uh, but one area I, I'm, I want to push you on a little bit is, uh, which has obviously gotten a lot of attention over the uh, the, the last 45 years, um, your discussion of the way in which we treat people with disabilities. Um, there's an intellectual side to to that debate, and and I didn't want to have that right now. What I'm curious about is that. I suspect you would share with me the view that people with disabilities have uh, been badly discriminated against in the public debate uh, and have uh, suffered a great deal through thoughtless public policies. Do you think using the analogy of people with disabilities past an intellectual cost-benefit test? In some sense, do you think you could have made your animal liberation arguments without uh, making arguments around disabilities that some in the disability community found quite hurtful? Uh, certainly, I do agree with you that people with disabilities have been the subject of, of discrimination, that it was quite wrong um, and uh, should be not allowed, for example, in employment or, or housing. Um, the fact that somebody has disabilities which don't interfere with their ability to do the, the, the work um, should have nothing to do with their, how employable they are. And uh, I think we, we quite rightly stop that kind of discrimination. Um, but could I have made my arguments as uh, forcefully without making some of the points that I do make? Um, well, even in our earlier conversation um, in discussing speciesism and how we can know that in fact we have attitudes that are just based on preference for our species rather than based on a preference for people with 
a certain level of cognitive abilities that are superior to those of non-human animals. Um, I made the, the, the point that when people lack those cognitive abilities, then we still regard them as having rights and regard them as um, not, you know, we, we don't consider ourselves justified in treating them in the way we treat non-human animals. So without referring to the people whose cognitive abilities are not superior to those of non-human animals, it's difficult to make that point. Um, I'm not quite sure how one would. Now you could say, well, you could just not make that point. You could just talk about the fact that there's a lot of cruelty going on to animals uh, and not make the point that the cruelty is based on a prejudice in favor of members of our species. Um, that's possible. Uh, and you ask, you know, does, does the use of that argument pass the, the cost benefit test? Um, I honestly, you know, I can't really be sure of that. It's, it's such a big sort of hypothetical. Um, how much damage has this done? It certainly caused some people with disabilities to be troubled by it, um, but not all. Um, I've also had many letters in contact with people with disabilities who reject the opposition to my views and see the, the, the point that I'm making. So um, I suppose I don't really want to um, uh, weaken the strength of the arguments for reducing this, the suffering of, uh, you know, you said sort of something like 60 billion animals a year, and that's without including the fish. So uh, a lot more than that even. Um, and that's not including the other animals outside the food industry who also suffer. Um, uh, I'd be reluctant to weaken the point of that argument just for avoiding offending some people. If it could be shown that it was really feeding into discrimination that would make people with disabilities worse off beyond being offended by it, uh, I would be more troubled by that. But I'm not aware of any evidence that it's had that effect. Um, and it seems to me a bit, of a, a bit of a leap to assume that it would have that effect. Thank you, that's a, that's a really thoughtful, thoughtful reply. Uh, in terms of where the world is moving now, I'm, I'm struck that there's some developments that seem to be driven by uh, um, ethical, moral issues. Uh, the one is the move away from caged eggs, which has happened quite dramatically over the course of the last 20 years. It's the animal rights issue with which my three boys are, are most engaged, for example. Uh, there's no way they would uh, tolerate having anything but free-range eggs in the, uh, in the fridge. Uh, but another is uh, this, this shift to uh, uh, beyond, beyond Beef and Impossible Burgers uh, to the attempt to try and produce uh, a, uh, a fake meat which tastes better than, uh, than beef. Uh, how much promise do you think that holds? I think it is quite promising um, because I think people are sort of very much into eating certain kinds of food, that perhaps the foods they grew up with or... Uh, I don't know, perhaps some of them we have a kind of a natural taste for. Um, uh, and if, you know, it, it, although I think the kind of arguments I've been putting forward have had some influence, um, they certainly haven't had the influence that I would like them to have. And in fact, worldwide, the number of animals in factory farms now is greater than it was 45 years ago when I wrote Animal Liberation. So uh, the question is, how can we stop this? And uh, one plausible strategy is by producing 
products that um, taste like meat, that, that chew like meat, um, and that can be cooked like meat, but either aren't meat at all, like the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Burger, which are plant-based products, or they are meat, but they're meat that's been grown at the cellular level from a single, uh, originally from a single animal cell. So there was never a living, breathing, feeling animal that they were part of. Uh, and uh, of these two methods, the first, the plant-based method is already well on the market um, and I think is doing pretty well. And the only thing that perhaps it needs to become more widespread is for the price to be reduced a little so it competes better with meat products. Uh, and the second, the cellular-based meat, uh, just last week, uh, Singapore became the first country to approve cellular chicken for human consumption, um, produced by an American company called Just. And uh, I hope that that's the forerunner of many other approvals of, and many other products as well. I know there's a lot of other products, uh, cellular uh, seafood products are in development, um, uh, cellular beef. Um, there are a lot of other products that are in development and it's really just a matter of scaling up and cutting, getting the price to drop so that they would be an alternative on the market. Uh, and that would be excellent in terms of reducing animal suffering. It would also incidentally reduce greenhouse gas emission because uh, particularly ruminants like uh, cattle and, and sheep uh, are very major contributors to climate change. Yes, I was struck by your comment in the book that the worldwide livestock industry has similar carbon emissions to uh, to the vehicle sector. So it's uh, it's pretty dramatic. Uh, but in terms of those uh, those fake uh, fake meats, there are some in the vegan vegetarian community who say that uh, uh, it shouldn't be tolerated. I guess for similar reasons uh, of the the critics of uh, the public health critics of e-cigarettes, uh, people seeing uh, fake meat as as in some way legitimising the eating of meat or, or else potentially serving as a gateway into meat eating. Uh, do you have much truck with those arguments? No, I don't. Um, if the people making those arguments have some other good suggestions about how we can prevent the, the rearing of the 60 billion plus animals um, in horrible conditions, uh, I would like to hear it. Um, and I would love to try to put it into action. But as I said, I've been using these ethical arguments for 45 years. Uh, it's made progress, but the progress is too slow at the rate we're going. Uh, we're going to have these tens of billions of animals suffering year after year, um, you know, well into this, uh, well into the century and maybe another 50 years, who knows how long it would take. But if we could get um, tasty economical alternatives, whether plant-based or, or cellular, um, that could, um, you know, end that as dramatically as the invention of the internal combustion engine uh, ended the suffering of horses that, uh, you know, if you read novel 19th century novels like Black Beauty, uh, horses suffered horribly because they were the means of pulling loads. And uh, that wasn't wiped out by ethical argument or by writing novels like Black Beauty. It was really wiped out by the development of an economically viable alternative. Yes. Uh, you, you talked before, a couple of times about uh, the uh, sort of aspirations you had for the book. Uh, I mean, most authors would be pretty delighted by a book that sold the, the um, better part of a million copies. Uh, and yet, you know, I've heard you say a, a couple of times you're, uh, you're disappointed by, uh, by what, it's, uh, what it's achieved in the last 45 years. Uh, why is that? Well, 
the, the reason is that I think that the arguments are extremely powerful uh, that I put forward. And I was hoping that people would read this and say, oh my goodness, uh, this, is, this is terrible. I've been participating in this uh, moral atrocity for so many years. Uh, I'm gonna stop now and I'm gonna tell all my friends or neighbors to, to read the book so that they stop as well. Um, and if you know, that had happened, we wouldn't be in this situation where uh, the number of animals in factory farms has actually increased uh, over these years rather than decreased. But nonetheless, if you think of uh, the impact that any given book has on the arc of history, uh, yours is up there. Uh, you know, I wouldn't want to say it's the most influential book ever written, but it's surely got to be among the, the, the top 20 most influential books ever written. Uh, don't, you, don't you get to sit back in your laurels a little bit? Well, thank you for those those words. I, that's very kind, um, uh, and and it, it has certainly had some influence. But um, no, I don't think I get to sit back on my laurels uh, while it's still there. You know, I would like, rather have the effect of say um, uh, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, which uh, pointed to DDT as uh, such a, a a killer of 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 birds and other animals, and you know, going up the feed chain, food chain, and making species extinct. And DDT basically isn't used now. Um, so uh, I would rather have had that to happen to meat. Um, unfortunately, meat is sort of, I suppose, more central to people's preferences and choices than DDT was. Yes, it's, uh, it's part of your celebrations. It's part of uh, what we think of as, uh, as healthy living. I mean, you're, you're taking on a, a big challenge there. But I think, I think the issue is, uh, is, is moving in a way in which... Um, Perhaps the ocean liner looked as though it would have been harder to shift uh, uh, 45 years ago. Uh, my sense, you know, talking to a lot of friends, is that steady move from uh, red meat towards white meat towards having more plant-based alternatives, and the technology has just improved the the quality of vegetarian food uh, so dramatically. It's now very rare to go to a restaurant and not have a good vegetarian option on the menu, as distinct from a cruddy one. Yeah, or none at all, which was the case when I became a vegetarian, mostly. Yes. But uh, yeah, it, it, you're right. There, there are these positive trends, and uh, let's hope that they continue, and let's hope that they spread all over the world. That's what we need. Peter, uh, just uh, finally, uh, you've uh, been spending the uh, the last year in Melbourne rather than your uh, your beloved New Jersey. Um, how have you how have you found lockdown? And uh, and as a as a philosopher, what reflections do you have on the way in which the world has responded to uh, uh, the biggest pandemic in a century? Well, before I answer that, let me say that to me, Melbourne is much more beloved than New Jersey. New Jersey is, <laughs> I like New York City. New York City is great and Princeton is a wonderful university and Princeton is in New Jersey, but New Jersey as a state does not uh, pull at my heartstrings in the way that uh, Melbourne or, or Victoria uh, or Australia in general does, I have to say. Mm. Um, yes, look, I'm very happy to be here, uh, to be in Victoria. And uh, you know, I, I came to Victoria uh, for a period of, of, of leave um, uh, around the beginning of the, the year. And then Princeton decided that uh, it was not gonna have students on campus anyway because of the, the pandemic. And so I said, great, well, you know, if I'm gonna teach online by a computer, can I do it from here rather than have to go back? And they said, okay. So, so that's why I've been here. And, but I'm in touch with my friends in the US and they can hardly believe that we actually don't have uh, cases of the virus now here 
at all um, and that our life is slowly returning closer to normal anyway um, because theirs are certainly not. Um, things are getting steadily worse. Uh, the United States is now, more, more people are dying from the virus every day than died on September the 11th, 2001 from the terrorist attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. So, yes. you know, if that day was a disaster for the United States, then you could say every day is, is a disaster now. And what about the uh, the way in which lockdowns have been managed? Uh, I mean, I know you've you've been uh, engaged in a conversation about the ethics of uh, of lockdowns, and particularly um, thinking about the trade offs inherent in uh, in lockdowns. As a uh, passionate utilitarian, uh, how do you think we're going on that score? Yeah, I have been in discussions uh, on that topic, and I think you do have to look at the circumstances uh, and what you're trying to achieve and, and how you're going to achieve it. Here in Australia, uh, partly because we close the borders relatively early and partly because we are an island and it's harder for people to move in, uh, we had the prospect of uh, eliminating the virus. And um, arguably, we've, we've done that or we're virtually done that uh, in Australia now. Um, and I think that justifies uh, a, a severe um, and relatively prolonged lockdown that we had in Victoria, the one that lasted 111 days. Um, but if you can get rid of the virus that way and then return to a relatively normal life, of course, not normal where it comes to international arrivals, um, and then hang on until we get the vaccine, until the rest of the world get the vaccine. That I think is a is a sensible strategy, and there's a high cost to the lockdowns, um, high cost in damage to the economy, in people being unemployed, in children um, not being as well educated, because especially for small children, remote learning can't compare with in-person learning. Um, mental health issues, you know, evidence of more depression and domestic violence. So there are, there are costs, but I think it's worth paying those costs if you can then have a chance of getting back to a reasonably normal life. For places like the United States and perhaps Europe with um, the, where the virus was much more entrenched before people started taking serious action and where also it's more difficult uh, generally to stop people moving around. Um, I'm not sure you know, that the lockdowns were as easy to defend. I'm not saying they weren't defensible or aren't defensible and they, you know, California is now going back into lockdowns. That may still be the right thing to do. But um, you have to think, you know, what are we trying to do here? I suppose the, the, the justification for lockdowns in those circumstances are to try to um, basically even out the, the pace at which the virus develops so that you don't have intensive care units that are uh, so full that they can't take more patients. Um, you don't have uh, situations where hospitals are on the verge of breaking down. Um, and you, you have fewer people dying until the vaccine arrives. But, um, but certainly, you know, if, if, you, if you really had to go into lockdown for many months and you didn't have a prospect of a vaccine coming or of actually eliminating the virus, then you'd have to say, look, there's, there's going to be big costs anyway because eventually this will only stop when we have uh, herd immunity, when we have enough people who have been infected for the virus not to continue to spread. So I think that, that was the, the sort of reasonable point that some of the critics of lockdowns were making, that you needed to have a strategy as to how long this was going to be and how it would end. And it wasn't always clear that there was such a strategy um, in the United States or in 
some European countries. And as usual in these things, uh, having a nuanced conversation uh, became very difficult from uh, from either side. I think. Yeah, that's that's particularly so in America, where you know the Trump administration just was was, was saying crazy things, and <laughs> you know you, you can the Washington Post I think compiled video of Trump saying starting in February, saying, oh, don't worry about the virus. It won't be here long. You know, we're going to get a cure for it. It'll go away. And he just repeats it over and over again in February, March, April, May, June, July, all the way until just, you know, the election. Um, so, uh, you know, they totally mishandled it. And that made it a political thing. So that, you know, wearing a mask became a sign of support for Biden because he was wearing a mask and Trump wasn't wearing a mask. Um, and that's, that's insane. And, I, you know, I think it is one of the good things about Australian politics that we didn't get as partisan as that, um, that basically both at the federal level and here in Victoria, um, where we of course have, you know, a government of a, a Labor government in Victoria is against a, a liberal federal government. Um, you know, there was, there was a reasonable acceptance of that we need to follow the science, that we need to listen to the scientists, to the chief medical officers and uh, other relevant uh, scientists as to what was the best thing to do. Um, which in the United States wasn't really there. You know, um, you could see the way the way Trump was uh, abusing Fauci and uh, uh, insulting him, and when he was clearly uh, the, uh, giving the best possible scientific advice. Well, Peter, uh, I think many people regard philosophy as being uh, abstruse and complicated, but you are the, the model of the public philosopher, somebody who's willing to engage boldly with short sentences and big ideas. Uh, you uh, really began doing that in earnest in 1975 with Animal Liberation, and you're showing no signs of, uh, of stopping. Uh, the latest book is, uh, is Why Vegan? Uh, and, uh, and it's a, another important contribution uh, to a big question that, uh, that affects all of our lives every day. So thanks for taking the time to uh, discuss it on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you, Andrew. It's been my pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll enjoy my past conversation with Peter Singer, as well as my chat with Martha Nussbaum. On the theme of living well, Nick Terrell and I have a new book out, titled Reconnected, a Community Builder's Handbook. If you enjoy this show, we reckon you'll like the book too. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.